Hey, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, I can't remember the last time I was at first service. Had to be well over a year ago. So anyway, it's, it's good to be here. Uh, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here. And this is the first time I actually saw the, uh, the, the baseball card for Micah. And if I would have known this, I would have called it this message, The Naked Prophet. And we'll find out why as we get into it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats uh, in front of you there. Uh, go ahead and use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home as our gift to you. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. Click on More, click on Events. It'll bring us up by GPS, and it'll go through the verses that we'll be uh, going through today, some of the notes, and all of the announcements as well. Again, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, come say hi to me afterward. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for uh, your message to us, Lord. Uh, as you Take apart, Lord, uh, the lives of your people, and you realize, we realize, Lord, that we have sin in our lives, and you come and you, you indict us of that sin, but yet at the same time, you pronounce pending judgment, and you pronounce promises of restoration and deliverance because of your loving kindness and because of your mercy. And so this morning, Father, we pray that uh, you would bring us hope even uh, if we are suffering through the pain of the consequences of our choices and, and, and the things we have done in our lives that uh, are the result of loving ourselves as opposed to loving you. So today, Father, we uh, ask that you would speak to each one of us right where we're at. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. As I said, we're continuing our series on the Minor Prophets, which represents uh, 12 different prophets and books of the Old Testament. Today, we're going to be looking at the prophet Micah, so you can find that on page 503 of the Element Bible. And as you have heard throughout this series, uh, these prophets are called minor uh, because of the length of their writings, not because their message is any less important. And Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? Remember that, who is like Yahweh. And Micah was a country boy, kind of like Amos was. But unlike Amos, who was a fig farmer, Micah was actually a full-time prophet for more than 30 years. Yet he only wrote seven chapters. And during the time that he writes those seven chapters, Isaiah comes along and he writes 66 chapters. So Micah, apparently, he preached most of the time and he wrote little. He served under three kings of Judah. The first one, Jotham, he uh, feared God, but the people continued in their sinful practices and in their idolatry while he was king. And then his son Ahaz was a wicked and an idolatrous king, and he erected idols in Judah. He offered his sons as burnt sacrifices to pagan gods, and he even closed the temple. And the people then followed his example, and God ultimately brought Syrians and Assyrians, and he used the northern tribe of Israel to bring judgment upon the nation of Judah. And you can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And lastly, he served under Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And amazingly, Hezekiah, he rejected the idolatry of his father, and he embraced the faith of his grandfather, Jotham. He reopened the temple, he reestablished worship of Yahweh, and he challenged the people to tear down those 
those places of idolatry in Judah, which they ultimately did. Now, Micah, he prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital city is Jerusalem, and to the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital city is Samaria. And this book that we're going to go through, this book of Micah, is actually a series of three different prophecies, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and then chapters 6 and 7. And they all kind of follow the same format, where God indicts the people for their sin. And he pronounces judgment that is pending, that's going to come upon them. And then ultimately, he promises a hope of restoration after all of that. So we need to set the stage here by first acknowledging that all human beings, regardless of whether they believe in God or not, are worshipers. We are worshipers. And we're meant to worship God in this love and devotion that results in our joy, in our satisfaction, and ultimately peace with others. And mankind's original sin, what we call the fall of man, is where we ultimately trusted in ourselves over God. But it never changed the, changed the fact that we are worshipers. It only changed who and what we worshiped and what we trusted in for our well-being. And therein lies the problem, because there are all sorts of objects of devotion that fight for our affections. And none of those can bring lasting joy or satisfaction or peace. And this was the issue with the people in Micah's day. They were engaged in idolatry, in the worship of idols. And this led to oppression. It led to covetousness. It led to all sorts of injustice and violence. And God, in His holiness, He had to bring judgment on their sin. And yet God, in His loving kindness and mercy, would also use that judgment to bring deliverance and restoration to his people. And so all of that led to what, what, Je- what Jesus came and what he said, that all of the law, the entire law and the prophets rested on these two commands in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second one in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These are the foundation upon which God's initial covenant with Israel had rested. And the Ten Commandments actually follow this same concept, where the first four emphasize a love for God. And the final six emphasize a love for neighbor. And this is how God intended his people to relate to him and to one another. And it looks like this in diagram number one. You can see on the screen there. You see that it starts with love because love is the motive behind every act. And that love is supposed to be directed towards God. And when it is directed towards God, that love results in a loyalty to God, which is a choosing obedience to his law and a surrendering to his will. And if we do that, ultimately then, that leads us to freedom, where we experience God's blessing and our joy in His presence. And then if you follow it to the other side, you see that that authentic love is also supposed to be directed towards our neighbor, which ultimately then results in affection. And that affection is is a caring for and it's um, desiring what's best for the other person. And with that affection, it then leads to hospitality. In hospitality, it's more than just dinner invitations. It is any action that demonstrates our care for another person in some way. But for the people of Israel and Judah, their love for God became replaced by duty. 
Now, duty is an important part of any covenant where we obligate ourselves to certain responsibilities. In marriage, for example, we are to strive to fulfill our obligations on the basis of love. But at the end of the day, duty still demands that we follow through. But duty, is, duty alone is an insufficient motive for loyalty and for obedience. It wasn't strong enough to keep the people connected to God in covenant and His demand for ethical living. And so they grew weary of God's commands. You see, only authentic love for God and neighbor can provide the proper motivation to live in this way. And so they began to love idols and serve themselves. And it looked more like this, which is the second diagram. They replaced the love for God with the love of idols. And the people's love of these idols led to loyalty to their idols rather than loyalty to God. And the result was bondage. They were trapped in their sin and they would experience literal bondage when both Israel and Judah were defeated by foreign nations. And so rather than loving their neighbor, they became a totally self-absorbed culture where it looked differently. Love, instead of being directed at neighbor, love was directed towards me, my happiness, my success, which resulted in self-preservation where I care only about what is needed to get my way. And then ultimately that led to self-service where I would do whatever it takes to get my way regardless of its impact on other people. And so the people then, they chose deceit over truth and coveting over contentment and stealing over earning. And as a result, God's blessing would be replaced by disaster. And this is where we pick it up in the very beginning in Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're going to read some long passages today, so stick with me here. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So Micah doesn't waste any time here introducing his message, right? He doesn't spend time on niceties and slowly ramp up. He gets right to the point, and he shocks his readers with the words of God that they so desperately needed to hear. God is a witness against you because of your sins, and they needed to wake up to the destructive nature of sin and God's disgust of the injustice and the oppression and the abuse that resulted. You see, God doesn't take sin lightly, and he doesn't treat it superficially. He doesn't simply say, stop doing bad things. He goes to the very root of the problem, their love of idols rather than their love for him. And he knows that the disastrous effects of sin has more to do with our identity and our worship than our behavior and our actions. In other words, the problem is in the heart behind the action. And their idolatry had led to a complete breakdown in community at every level. 
Listen to Micah's lament in Micah chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Wow. So from their political and their judicious and their religious leaders, all the way to their neighbors and their friends and even their family, they were ruled by self-interest and they had contempt for anything or anyone they got in their way. Is that really that hard to believe? All you got to do is watch reality TV for about 15 minutes and you'll see that, no, it's not really that hard to believe. It pictures a constant scheming to get what they wanted, regardless of who may suffer because of it. In chapter 2 of Micah, verses 3 and 4, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Because of sin, God tells us through Micah that judgment is inevitable. God doesn't overlook sin and its consequences. And that's why Micah can be a hard book for us to read, because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We agree that justice should be served for the wrongs of others, but we're not eager for justice to be served for our wrongs. Judgment is inevitable for the oppression and the mistreatment of others and for the misuse of money and injustice because these things are difficult for us to face. And we see that sin is rampant out in the world because it's rampant in the deepest parts of our hearts. And Micah makes God's diagnosis clear by addressing what's happening underneath all of that injustice that can be seen in the world. We've replaced our love for God and neighbor with love of idols and ourselves. If we look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, once again, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? High places were these pagan sanctuaries for idol worship. And God warns them in verse 7, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So rather than worshiping God in His presence, in the temple, in Jerusalem, they choose to worship someone else and somewhere else. And by choosing to worship God in a way that's different from what He provides, they seem to begin to worship a God who is different from the real one. You see, idolatry is ultimately choosing one's own will over God's will, and it's giving ultimate allegiance to something or someone else that ultimately God requires of us. And this could be a number of things. It could be wealth. It could be influence, romance, power, comfort, or anything else that we put our hope and trust in more than God. 
In verse 7 here, it refers to wages from prostitution, indicating that part of the people's idolatry had to do with wealth and, and sex. And there was a link here between the people's idolatry and their injustice. They engage in injustice and oppression and abuse of power because of their idolatry. And God's promised judgment is going to destroy these idols because God's no, God knows they will ultimately destroy the people whom He loves. And so, out of duty, they may not have rejected all of God's ways, but they added other objects of worship to their worship of Him. And God views their love of idols as prostitution, as spiritual adultery. But it's not like they committed adultery and said, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. They're saying, we still want you, God. We, we still enjoy being loved by you, but we want something or someone else because they make us happy. And when we look at their idolatry and ours in this way, we begin to understand why God ab abhors it so much. You see, humans have such a strong attachment to their idols. Again, we become in love with those idols and we, it results in loyalty to them where we end up serving those idols, which ultimately leads to our bondage to them. And judgment comes because God loves them and there can be no rescue without first removing the objects of idolatry. And all of that led to covetousness, and it led to oppression. In Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance. Well, we can find it easy to say, woe to those who devise wickedness like this. Uh, there are those who calculate evil even while they're sleeping because they think about it so much. But verse 2, it goes on to describe oppression that is more implicit rather than explicit. It's more subtle rather than obvious. You see, having your field seized in that ancient world would mean that your opportunity for making a living would be taken away. And even if it's not malicious, you would be severely crippled and disadvantaged. And similar dynamics actually exist in our modern world that can create the same disparity of opportunity. These acts have been displayed in all human societies and communities. Look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. This happens in our societies. Like back then, today, women and children of the poor, are, they suffer great disadvantages. Statistically, women will be more likely to live in poverty than men are. And the causes of this, they're never simple, but there are certain structural realities in life, both ancient and modern life, that allow both obvious and subtle forms of systematic oppression to exist. The poor, they don't have much power. And that's why God, He is so quick to stand up for them and to require that His people do likewise. What little they have, it keeps getting taken away. And in chapter 2, in verses 8 through 10, Micah pictures how, God saw, how God's people saw everything that others had as potential plunder, and the land became a place of oppression. And it just got worse from there. In Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, and I said, Hear, you heads, of, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice 
You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. God's appointed leaders here were supposed to rule the people so that they would flourish. They were supposed to be the ones that upheld justice by exercising their God-given power and authority for the common good, especially for those who were marginalized. But in the severest language that you'll find, God likens their leadership to that of their enemies, Assyrians who commonly practice skinning their captives alive. You see, they had the privilege of using this great gift of power for good, but instead they used it for selfish gain. Why? They used it for what they loved. We see in verse 5 that even the religious leaders abused their power by speaking messages that the people would wanted to hear, speaking messages of peace when they received some benefit, or they preached war when they didn't. He goes on in verse 9 of chapter 3, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with inequity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Wow. Now, we, we see a, stock, a stark contrast between Micah and these false prophets. You see, beyond just calling out the abuse of power that Micah sees all around him, Micah actually embodies the proper use of power. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. He's filled with power. He's filled with the Spirit of God. He's filled with justice and might. This is language that's similar to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 42, where he talks about the Messiah and how the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. To do what? To engage in acts of justice. How are we supposed to exercise that power? Because God has given to each one of us a measure of power. I like how Dallas Willard uh, defines spirit, how he defines our spirit. Unembodied personal power. God has given us this measure of power that we are to exercise. And how do we do that? By loving our neighbor, which results in affection, caring for them, wanting what's best for them, which leads ultimately to hospitality. And what again is hospitality? It's acts of justice towards other people. It's doing good towards them. Now, in, in all of this, in Micah's three prophecies here, God declares that he is going to put an end to idolatry, and to oppression, and to injustice. Judgment will come, and wrongs will be righted. But God also promises that He is going to save and He's going to restore a remnant of His people. 
Deliverance is going to come, but it's going to come through judgment. Restoration will happen, but it will be through rebuke. And resurrection will take place, but it's going to be through suffering. And in all of this, there is one who tries to intercede and tries to advocate for the people. And this is Micah, in Micah chapter 1, verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked, hence the naked prophet. And I will make lamentation for the, um, like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Micah, he's willing to be stripped naked and lament on their behalf. He understands that this is where idolatry leads, to the shame of feeling exposed, to rejection, to feeling you're not accepted, to contamination, to to feeling unclean. But Micah, he can't change anything. He can only join them in being naked and rejected and ashamed. In chapter 2, verse 12, God says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and they pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. On the heels of God announcing Israel's utter ruin because of their covetousness and their oppression, God provides a shimmering hope that they so desperately need. Beyond things getting worse for them, they will get better for a remnant that God will gather and save. And beyond rebuke will come restoration. A shepherd is coming who will gather his people together. He will burst through the breach, through that gap. He will break through the gates of oppression and he will lead them and he'll lead us to a new day. And that brings us to one of the most significant prophecies you'll find in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. A promised new ruler will come from the least expected little town of Bethlehem to shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord. But his coming is really from of old, from ancient days. This emphasizes both the weakness and the strength of this restore. Weakness and strength, humility and power. They usually don't coexist, but he will come in a gentle and a weak way, even though he is from of old. In that word, old there, it's only used two other times in the Old Testament, and they both refer to describing God as being from everlasting or being eternal. And we know from the story of Jesus' birth that this is exactly what happened. He was born in the humblest earthly way possible. But his arrival demanded a multitude of heavenly hosts to declare God's glory and to proclaim peace on earth. But there would be a long road before this restoration took place. You see, God doesn't offer them or us any shortcuts. 
As with anything beautiful and valuable in life, there is a path that we need to walk in order to reach it. And this road for them, it's going to be long, it's going to be narrow, and it will be hard. There was a lot of pain, and God promised restoration. You see, our natural inclination is to avoid pain at all costs. Much of what we do in life is driven by pain avoidance. We work hard so that we can avoid the pain of financial insecurity. We long to avoid physical pain and discomfort. We maneuver to avoid the societal pain of losing our position or or losing status. We long for relationships in order to avoid the pain of loneliness. And these things, they're not bad in and of themselves. They're just ways that we try to overcome pain in our lives. And in addition to being pain avoiders, many of us are pain hiders. You know who you are, right? A person could be going through all sorts of hurt, turmoil, fear, anxiety, and appear perfectly composed on the outside. And the scriptures, they provide an honest assessment of the experience of pain. In Micah chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, he says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and I will gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. There are two groups that are being addressed here. The lame, which represents pain caused by the brokenness that's inside of us. And those who are cast off, representing the pain that's caused by the brokenness of circumstances outside of us. And whether it comes from inside of us or outside of us, God promises to restore us from all of it. And the word lame here, it actually alludes to Genesis 32, where Jacob, who became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, he had been running away from God, running away from his brother Esau and his father Isaac. And ultimately, he was running from him himself and his difficult circumstances. And Jacob, whose name means he cheats, stole his brother's birthright by deceiving his father Isaac. And he became a wanderer. And it took him many years to finally go back. And God meets him in those circumstances, coming in the form of a man. And he wrestles with him. Who do you suppose that was? Jesus, maybe? Yeah. And and he touches his hip socket. And Jacob is injured in such a way that it causes him to limp. And yet at the same time, he receives God's blessing. For the rest of his life, he would walk with a limp, and he would always be reminded that this limp was caused by God. Not as a punishment, but as a means for Jacob to remember his experience of knowing that God was with him and that God had restored him. Jacob's pain was caused in part by hard circumstances around him, but it was also caused in part by his response to those circumstances. And yet God promises to restore the lame. And Micah uses this word so God's people would know how God would deal with them also. They may be lame, but they were also blessed. And it's only the second one that would last. Now, not only would God restore them from the pain, but God also restores through the pain. In Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? 
Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God tells them there is going to be pain, like a woman in labor. And he points to the difficult future in captivity to Babylon. But restoration will come. And it's there in Babylon that God will rescue them and redeem them from their enemies. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There is this promise of restoration. But God says not only will it be from pain, but it will be through pain. And the analogy of a woman in labor is very well chosen here. It's the kind of pain that nearly half of the human race, in most cases, willingly accepts. If you've been through it, you know how difficult it is. Thank God for epidurals, right? But you also know how wonderful it is. You labor through the pain of childbirth because of the new life that is on the other side of it. You see, God here, he's showing them the bed of affliction that they have made because of their sin. But he's also showing that he's gracious enough to rescue them from having to eternally sleep in that bed. You see, Micah's message here of sin and judgment and hope, these are also categories for us to evaluate our lives. Sin is rampant and judgment is inevitable, but hope is coming. Indeed, hope has come to us in Christ who took on the inevitable judgment for our sin. In chapter 7, uh, verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. How beautiful is that? You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So where's the rescue? You see, the larger story of Scripture tells us that there is one who came to intercede and to advocate. Remember Micah's name? Jesus comes and he answers the question, who is a God like you? By saying, there is no one like Yahweh. No one, but I am Him. I am not like God. I am God. Jesus comes as the Lord who becomes naked so that we would be clothed with His righteousness. He was rejected so that we would be fully accepted and embraced. He becomes unclean and contaminated by our idolatry so that we may be rescued from His judgment and attraction. He is our advocate. He is our rescuer. And he is the only one who can absorb the judgment of God so that we could be freed by the power of the gospel from putting idols on the throne of our hearts. He's the only one who will satisfy our deepest longings. You know, many of us lament a sense of worthlessness, shame and fear and anxiety and even depression. And the voices of the world and of the flesh and of Satan, they tell us over and over again, you're no good, you're ugly, you're a failure, you're a nobody. And outside of having a saving relationship with God, in one sense, much of that can be true. 
But Jesus comes and he says, I won't just enter into sharing your shame and your nakedness. I will take them from you. And God the Father says, you are my beloved. You are my chosen possession. And nothing can change that because my beloved son has absorbed the judgment that you deserve so that you might receive the acceptance and the embrace that he deserves. This is the reality of the gospel. And it's the only power that can root out the affections that can take the place of God in our hearts. You see, Micah, he could only join in the lament, but Jesus came in order to remove our lament. I want to invite the band to come up at this time, wherever they are. Come on up. There they are. In Micah chapter 6, God says to the people, what have I done? What, What have I done to make you grow weary? And he goes on to remind them that all of the good things that he has done for them, how he delivered them, from Egypt, from slavery, and all of God's righteous acts. And for us, we need to remember, that's part of our our worship together as believers. We need to always remember the grace and the goodness of God. And that's partly uh, why we gather together as as we worship, to to keep in our memory the things that God has done for us. Because memory indicates an active relationship to God. And so it's a constant and reflective examination of the value of God and and His impact on our lives. And so how do we do that? We we do that by giving back to God some of what He has blessed us with. We remember His blessings. And so we worship God through our giving, and we have offering boxes uh, near all of the exits here. We worship God as we sing praises to Him, as the band plays. We take those things that we know in our head, the things that we've heard, and we give a voice to them by expressing them with our, with our voices so that they become a part of our hearts. And so it's giving voice so that our hearts can be aligned with what we know in our head. And we worship God through communion. It's especially a time where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus, that he made for us as we take that wafer or a cracker if you're at home, and we break it, we remember his body that was broken for us. And as we drink of wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for our reconciliation, for our restoration, for the forgiveness of our sins. May we be a people that continually look to Jesus and his beauty and his grace so that we may have an authentic love in our hearts for him that would result in a loyalty to him where the natural inclination of our hearts is to do his will. And may that ultimately result in the freedom of living in God's presence, freedom from idolatry, freedom to experience his joy and his blessing in his presence. Maybe today uh, you're thinking about how You've exercised power in your life, and and maybe it's been oppressive in some cases, and you want to talk to somebody about that. We have people who would love to pray with you um, if you want to do that, and just go see Sarah at the back. Maybe you looked at that diagram, and and, and rather than 
seeing a love for God and love for neighbor, your life looks a little more like love for idols and love for yourself. And maybe you find yourself in a place of actual bondage to those things and, and you want somebody to pray with about that. I would invite you to go back and, and talk to them and, and let them pray for you. Pray with me now, please. Father, thank you again for your message. Lord, it's a message of hope, and yet it's, it's a realistic message where we realize, Lord, that because of our sins, or we can find ourselves in situations that are painful, where they don't just magically go away, but yet you provide a promise of hope and restoration, not only from that pain, but, but through that pain, if we would just keep our eyes fixed on you and trust you. Father, I pray that, Lord, we, you would help us to continually look at all that you've done for us, that we would encourage one another to remember the beauty of your salvation, the beauty of your Son, and the love that you have for us. And that that love, Lord, would, would drive us to surrender to your will, to experience your joy, to experience your freedom. And Lord, that it would go beyond that to, to those around us, Lord, that we would have in our hearts a deep affection for those around us, to desire their good. And Lord, ultimately, that it would lead to a hospitality where we actually do acts of justice, Lord, that we do good to them. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your power to be upon us that we might do justly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.